This is Farin Ezraeli, and I'm here with Heidi Hergaya, and she, we're starting a series today on the Bhagavad Gita, so I'm really excited and happy to have you here. And I thought maybe it would be useful for those of people who are listening to maybe know a little bit about your background as a yoga teacher and as a student of the Bhagavad Gita. Sure. Um, well, first of all, I'm also really happy to be here, and it's a great honor. Um, and yeah, I've been practicing yoga and meditation for a long time. I was a seeker from probably childhood, really. And uh, so I started asking questions about life and about who I was and about existence and, and why I suffered and why <laughs> all adults that I met seemed really, really unhappy. And I had to grow up and become another unhappy adult, and I didn't <laughs> want any of that to happen to me. So. I started looking and um, I just kept looking until I found answers and so pretty early on um, I found meditation and it was something that just felt very natural for me um, and it was very easy for me to sit and close my eyes and be in a contemplative um, space. I had started writing poetry when I was um, also younger and so it all kind of went together with that contemplative space that uh, seemed very natural to me at the time. Um, so that's how I started. Uh, and then um, when I graduated from high school, I grew up in Montreal, and um, I graduated from high school and got accepted to an international school out here on Vancouver Island. Um, and there I got introduced more fully to the philosophy behind meditation um, at the same time, we were having Baha'i people coming to our school, and that fascinated me because I was so interested in international understanding, which was the motto of my school, mm -hmm. um, and in people being able to live together in harmony, which was a big ideal of mine. So, um, yeah, so I was sort of torn between, okay, what, am I what path am I going to follow, and am I even going to follow a spiritual path? So um, I went to Israel and I lived there for a few months and somehow my whole spiritual development seemed to accelerate there and it became really obvious to me that I needed to come back to Canada and just start delving into yogic philosophy and yoga more. It was like a pull. I just felt like a magnetic pull. So I came back to Montreal and I started attending um, yoga classes and philosophy classes and satsangs um, at a center there and eventually moved into the center, um, and eventually went to India, and, <laughs> and the rest is history. And, um, and because I've always been a talker, um, so it's been very delightful for me to talk about this subject, which is closest to my heart. And somewhere in all of that, I encountered the Bhagavad Gita as a scripture that I would read and learn the Sanskrit verses um, and I found it so incredibly relevant and it was so fascinating to me that this is a scripture that was written thousands of years ago and the symbolism of Arjun on the battlefield and Krishna as the guru consciousness guiding him through that battle you know you there's many many discussions that take place about why did Vyas who's the writer of the Bhagavad Gita use war 
as his metaphor because it's very provocative. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people have taken issue with the fact that Vyas has used war as a metaphor. Well, I'll call it a metaphor. The, the Gita is actually a historical work and it's part of a greater scripture called the Mahabharata. Mm -hmm. So the Gita is 18 chapters describing the predicament of Arjun in the middle of the battlefield, um, wanting to know what to do and not knowing how to act. And, and this isn't just, you know, um, a normal run-of-the-mill person of the time. Arjun was one of the most esteemed warriors of his time and a very, very excellent human being and really, really cultured and established in all of the virtues of the time and being virtuous was, was very, very highly regarded in those days. So Arjun exemplified everything and found, and yet, despite the fact that he's like the most exemplary representative of humanity, finds himself in a situation that even he can't deal with. So I love that um, because everyone I meet finds themselves at some point in a situation in their life that they can't deal with, that mm -hmm. they don't have the resources that have been provided for them or that they've practiced up to that time, everyone encounters something where they're so challenged they just cannot use their normal resources that they normally use to normally get through a challenge and they don't know what to do. So would this be kind of like the crisis that, you know, in many spiritual traditions is considered a positive thing or a blessing because it yeah. opens you up? Would, would this be what that metaphor is, the crisis that one asks larger questions and and looks a little deeper yeah i i definitely think that that's true that it's 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 neat that you use the word crisis which we usually think of as some sort of emergency and something to panic about right <laughs> but but a crisis just is is a breaking point mm -hmm. into something vaster mm -hmm. and and the ability to deal with that what you're calling crisis um comes through the voice of Krishna. Right. So, um, and there's so much that he does to guide Arjun, A, in the field of action, um, but also to go even more deeply into what is it that, that created that sense of crisis in the first place. Mm -hmm. and, and there you get into the fact that a human being has normally experiences just three states of consciousness, waking, dream, and deep sleep. And it's in the waking state of consciousness, and a little bit in the dream state, but it's in the waking state of consciousness that a person experiences the waking state functioning of mind, which is dualistic. Mm -hmm. So if all of your resources to deal with your life situations and your mind are based in the waking state functioning of the mind which is dualistic, how are you going to get to the resolution of the crisis which is oneness through using means which are only available to you in the state of duality? Mm -hmm. I see. Very, very interesting. You've, you've touched on a very uh, essential part of all of yoga yeah. um, right there. but. Let's just put that on hold for a moment. Sure. And before we get into this a little bit more, I want to ask, 
now having studied the Gita for so long and having, you know, it's very close to your heart, how is it a part of your personal sadhana? Do you chant certain verses or do you read it every day or how is it used in your personal mm-hmm. sadhana? Um, yes, I definitely uh, use it as a central part of my personal sadhana. I do chant verses and there are whole chapters that I sometimes sing. Um, and actually for many years I was taking some of the English translation um, that I use that is very inspiring to me and I would find a verse that really inspired me and I would turn the English translation into a song. Uh I'm a a musician so I would turn the English translation into a song um, and that would become a way of actually living the meaning. Mm So that's one thing, and so and also I would have to spend time sitting and figuring out the what chords I was going to use and what tune, and then using my poetry background to turn it into something that sounded more like a poem. So, you know, it used a lot of things that I already have a propensity towards, mm-hmm. um, but keeps keeps me focused on that thought. So that's one thing that I've done over many many years. Um, and then studied often the word-for-word word meaning of the verses, um, gotten together with friends who also loved the Gita and had you know numerous, numerous discussions about it. And then even just in my own personal life, um, remembering the symbolism of Krishna and Arjuna and thinking of so many things that Krishna says to Arjuna and how incredibly relevant it is. I mean, I just, I find that just so phenomenal. It is so relevant to transform the limitation of the waking state functioning of the mind. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about that. And you mentioned the word dualism. So can we understand exactly what that means, maybe with some examples Mm -hmm. and understand what the opposite is? And and also if you can explain a little bit about the dream and the sleeping state. Sure. So, as I said before, um, a human being lives in three states of consciousness, kind of flipping back and forth from waking state to dream state to deep sleep state. Um, And in deep sleep, a person's mind is settled. Mm -hmm. you, You would never ask a person what they were thinking in deep sleep or, or, you know, or ask them what problems they experienced in deep sleep. Um, or even what joy they experienced in deep sleep. Mm -hmm. So the state of deep sleep is often used as um, a closest type of example to the space of non-dualism that I'm going to get to in a minute. But using that as a ground, in deep sleep everyone has had the experience that they are neither happy nor sad, they neither experience pain nor joy, they don't experience any pairs of opposites, they don't experience up or down, they don't even know, have a sense of their name or even where they're located, (laughs) you know, and nobody pays attention to it because most people say it's nothing, Mm -hmm. which is what the waking state mind says about deep sleep. Mm -hmm. So having said that, so from that ground of deep sleep, when consciousness starts to move, then you have dream state coming out of deep sleep. And and in dream state, 
A person does experience happiness and unhappiness. A person does experience pairs of opposites, but it's short-lived. You wake up in the morning, and whether you had a dream that you didn't like, then you can be relieved that it's over. <laughs> and if you had a dream that you liked, then you can be pleased. Uh, you, you'll also be disappointed because it's also over. Mm -hmm. So um, we like the dream state, actually, in the study of yoga philosophy because it also becomes a metaphor for how everything is temporary. Mm -hmm. So no matter what you experience in the dream state, whether it's favorable or unfavorable to you, it always has a beginning and an end. Mm -hmm. So now we move into the waking state. Mm -hmm. And the waking state is what we consider in yoga philosophy because that is where a person experiences a continuity of the sense of duality. So they wake up and, and it's much more solid and it's felt much more solidly. Mm -hmm. And that's why people are um, uncomfortable and reach that even that point of crisis that you were mentioning earlier. So in the waking state, a person, the, the very description of the waking state is the sense of duality. And now duality, do we mean a, a separation or boundary between me and my world and me and other people? Or how exactly can we understand duality more in a more tangible way? Yeah. Yes, separation between me and my world and me and other people. Mm -hmm. um, and separation between even me and myself. Mm -hmm. I, I'm divided, right? And I'm dividing myself all the time. Now, um, if I'm more aware, I'm going to feel the effect of this division and it's not going to feel good to me. Mm -hmm. And that begs the question, why? Why isn't it going to feel good to me? If, if the nature of the waking state is dualistic and that's where I spend most of my time, why should it be a problem that I experience the waking state's functioning? So, because... I am not limited, my real I mm -hmm. is not limited to the waking state functioning, the dream state functioning, and the deep sleep state functioning. So all three experiences in all three different states mm -hmm. are different functionings of consciousness, but the experiencer that exists throughout all three states is one. So you wouldn't say that it's a different Farah who ha experiences deep sleep, a different Farah who dreams, and a different Farah who wakes up. Mm -hmm. I see. And I'm saying Farah, but it's not really Farah. It's, it's, it's even subtler than the attribute of Farah. It's just you, I'm going to call it you the experiencer or the knower. Mm -hmm. Now that isn't limited by any of the three states of consciousness. I see. So it's the idea that we're limited that places limits and creates a dualistic kind of thinking. It's the idea. Yes, it is the idea. A limited idea. It's a limited idea, but you're also dealing with a, a very specific functioning. Like if, if my, the way my senses in my nervous system work is to apprehend what they call reality 
through that same sense of duality. Mm-hmm. So if I look at you, you look like you're a separate person sitting across from me. Mm-hmm. And that's because my eyes see that way. And everything that my eyes perceive, they perceive as separate. Mm-hmm. So I immediately, without thinking, will conclude you're separate, which is what you said before. It's true. So I'll say you're separate from me. And I'll say, and I will conclude you're separate from me based on the vision of the eyes and the way they function. And that uh, way of, of seeing that point of view is not one that uh, is a harmonious point of view. Well, no. And it's a point of view that is actually erroneous because it's not actually true that you're separate from me sitting over there. So the way that we see through our senses it does, uh, is not necessarily a correct way of seeing. It isn't a correct way of seeing. Okay. It is a correct way of seeing through the ahankar, which is a word that, uh, that is interesting, mm-hmm. uh, which means e- the ego consciousness. Mm-hmm. So the sense of I, as identified with the body, is there to protect the body Mm -hmm. and everything and all of the functioning of the senses all refers back to the original default position of the eye in the body which is the ahankar now yoga philosophy and what we're talking about as we're moving through the states of consciousness is the possibility of realizing a state of consciousness that isn't bound by the functioning of the deep sleep state, waking state, or dream state. So this and that state is free from ahankar. And that state is free from the sense of crisis, which is the experience of the dichotomy that a human being feels when he feels like, I seem to be bound in these three states, but I also feel like I know something else, and that I'm not that. So. Are, are you saying when you say that the consciousness is uh, not bound by the body that we have the ability to experience ourselves as more than just what we think we are? Absolutely. So this dialogue is all about how to achieve that level of consciousness. Exactly. And that is Arjun's predicament. So I had said earlier that Krishna understands that Arjun's predicament isn't actually based on his situation, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? So Arjun comes to his guru and he says, Guruji, I have a problem. (laughs) I have to fight these people and I don't want to do it. And that's my situation. You help me. I'm Mm -hmm. simplifying. But that's basically, it's very, very um, form oriented, Mm -hmm. right? And, but he's experiencing overwhelming feelings right he's it says in in chapter one he's overwhelmed Mm -hmm. and so he drops his weapons and he sinks into the back of his chariot and he says i will not fight and that's the end of the first chapter Mm -hmm. right and krishna now any other normal person would say oh you poor thing you seem to be so upset and here have a coffee or here (laughs) have an antidepressant or here (laughs) try yoga or here do this or that and actually, Krishna doesn't say any of that. He, his, one of his first words to him are, you, you 
pretend to be a wise person, but you speak like a fool. Mm-hmm. And he starts right away not giving any credibility to Arjun's waking state mind. Uh-huh. So he doesn't even affirm that there is a crisis. That's correct. And that non-affirmation is a way of uh, poking a hole in his viewpoint. Beautiful, exactly. And and be, and it's it, I I would say that's correct as a teaching method, but as Krishna who rep, who is living a state of consciousness that we're calling the fourth state because it isn't Is that Turiya? That's Turiya. And that runs through the other three. Okay. So so what I'll say here is that from the perspective mm-hmm. of that fourth state of consciousness, all forms of the world, all forms of the ego, all forms that were previously known as dualistic are now known as nothing but pure consciousness. Mm-hmm. And the dualistic w- would correspond to say in other spiritual paths would be samsara. I suppose. Yeah, and sansara's world. Mm -hmm. So world and mental functioning are synonymous. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's right. Right? So if if because again, if we go back to deep sleep, when mental functioning isn't happening, there is no world. Yes. Right? You the the entire universe could blow up when you're in deep sleep, and you wouldn't know it Mm -hmm. unless you woke up and then maybe heard a sound or saw something. Okay, this is very interesting. Let's let's um, talk a little bit about. Um, I, I once heard that the this sense of I or the sense of uh, me, the way that we limit ourselves, is at the root of all our negative emotions towards other people. Correct. For example, when we're disappointed or we have expectation or we're frustrated, there's a sense of I that is offended by some action. Yeah. So how does eliminating this sense of limitation also eliminate all other, we could say, mental afflictions or all other kinds of suffering that we have in our mind? Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's a big question. We could do like <laughs> <laughs> we could do a lot of interviews about just that topic. But the the root of all affliction, as you call it is the ahankar or the ego. Mm -hmm. The reason for that is that in reality, and and I mean reality the way I mean it, that like ultimate reality. In ultimate reality, there is no ahankar. Mm -hmm. It's an illusion. It's a false appearance of, it's a false appearance and a false apparent reflection of the ultimate I. Mm -hmm. Now, if I call myself to be I the ahankar or I the ego, then everything that comes after that is going to be incorrect about me. Mm-hmm. So the correction, which is a big part of what's happening with Krishna and Arjun, is that the correction of his placement of his his unconscious replacement of his I is what is happening with Krishna over and over again. That's why he starts off by not even acknowledging mm-hmm. the false eye. And he says, you think that these people are going to die. You think you're born and you're going to die. That is not the truth about you. 
Now this is extremely radical knowledge as against the knowledge that we are brought up with in the world. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You're born and you're told that you are a person who was born and that the progression of your life is moving towards an end which is called death. Mm -hmm. and, and of and course if you identify with the body then of course when the body goes you would consider that a death. That's right. Um, that sense which accepts appearance and disappearance is called the sense of birth and death. Mm -hmm. Now that applies to so much in the waking state as well. So the sense of birth and death also is is a, is integral to the ahankar or the ego mechanism. Becoming egolessness or free from the ego means becoming free from the fear of death. And this is Arjun's crisis. Mm -hmm. Neither does he want to kill nor does he want to be killed. Mm -hmm. And everything that a person experiences starting from their ahankar is based on A, the belief in birth and death, and B, the fear of death. This is very interesting. So it's not a, um, you could say that the ultimate wisdom would not be to, for example, help a person find happiness from not being sad or find yeah. happiness from not being fear but to actually overcome the sense of the root of all of it beautiful it's a it's a, a very difficult thing to grasp yeah um, because it uh, because you're if you're trying to grasp it with your waking state intellect it can't it will it can't grasp it mm -hmm. so but it is what you are so when you hear it and it rings true then you have to be sure that the one to whom it rings true is already your enlightened eye mm -hmm. the one who has doubt about it will never know mm -hmm. So the knowledge, though though there is and though there is a huge part of the teaching, let's say between Krishna and Arjun, where Krishna deals with Arjun's mind mm -hmm. as a teacher, mm -hmm. and you can read the entire Gita just as a kind of um, tool for seeing how does Krishna actually teach Arjun, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? But in his teaching. The, the effectiveness of his teaching is because there is no separation in Krishna. So he's not mm -hmm. a teacher and Arjun's a student. Arjun is him. Mm -hmm. Arjun is exactly the same eye as he is, only Krishna is enlightened of that fact and Arjun isn't. Uh -huh. And Arjun suffers only because of lack of enlightenment about that fact which, are, which Krishna has. But he wants that. Mm -hmm. He knows it's possible, and he knows that Krishna is the one who can give him that knowledge. That's to Arjun's credit. So what you're saying is the the state of being of of Krishna is what um, is what is effectively the teaching. Yeah, his state of oneness. Yeah. Okay. Um, one thing that. I, I think is related to this that maybe 
has a little more um, tangible concept that can help get to that is that con this concept of surrender so how can we understand how when we surrender it's a way of um, erasing or dissolving that sense of I that grasps on and be and shows up in our body as something very solid um, well you seem to have described it really well um, so how do you mean how can we understand or um, um, can you give some examples of what it means to surrender like when when either a problem shows up in our life mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or when we're actually doing actions mm -hmm. what, what does it look like right um, well so the opposite of surrender would be holding on mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. attaching um, yeah being being attached the state of being attached again to your sense of I am just a body mm-hmm and does it also apply to emotions like being attached to absolutely absolutely and so um, let's say to use your example you're experiencing some difficulty in your life like Arjun is mm -hmm. right and Krishna keeps saying surrender to me mm -hmm. right right surrender at, at one point later on he says give your mind to me and let me do everything mm -hmm. right just don't worry I'm gonna take care of everything and he keeps saying that I'm already doing everything mm -hmm. you think you're doing it but I'm already it that that itself is false <laughs> right is the idea that you actually are a separate person doing actions so all the source of all action is not available to be known by the waking state mind the source of all action. So, would that refer to uh, karma? I would say even de even deeper than karma is is a um, an unseen wellspring of consciousness energy in Gita. It's called Krishna. Um, in religion, it's called God. Um, in metaphysics, it might be called space. Okay. So that cosmic energy that universal being that highest self is actually at the source of everything uh-huh but the, but the functioning of the waking state mind in duality as I described the way it moves through the eyes and through the senses it cannot know the source unless it undertakes a transformation of moving the consciousness and the attention inward rather than outward okay so one of the ways to um, practice surrender would be to start to work on drawing the senses inward right because that would be where we can get in touch with right this underlying essence or this underlying source right now first you have to accept that um, who you are as a body and what your actions are and even what you're thinking is is all coming from somewhere mm -hmm. right and who thinks about that where is it coming from and often if you ask someone where is it coming from they'll point to their body and say it's coming from me mm -hmm. right but you know that if the 
if that same power which is giving life to the body and enlivening the thinking and the emotions and the actions if that power by its own free will decides to withdraw itself from the body then who can act who can think and who can feel so would that be like what what is it that makes the heart beat yeah like what it that's right what is it that that allows you to breathe in every moment mm-hmm. because you know that at your final moment the breath is withdrawn mm-hmm. so the breath giver is our source the thought giver is our source the feeling giver is our source remembering that is surrender huh. it won't easily happen for a person because a person isn't wired or designed in the waking state to remember the source the very birth of a human being equals forgetfulness of the source mm-hmm. so it's nobody's fault and that's a really really important thing is that it's not nobody did it it's not your fault you didn't create the separation from the source separation sense of separation from the source comes by birth now if you are a, an intelligent aware person like arjun you start to feel that it is insufficient to feel separate from your source and you start to ask questions mm-hmm. right and the, that sense of inquiry becomes the thread of your attention to lead you to the connection with the source mm-hmm. but in reality you're never disconnected from that source mhm so it's remembering it's it's remembering and it's offering so that's what i would also add to your idea of surrender when you said how can a person mm-hmm. surrender often if i notice something going on in my life or in my thinking and um and i don't know what to do just like arjun right so uh i'll offer it so mm-hmm. either in my meditation in my thinking it will be an intentional conscious offering to the space to the source to that which i cannot see you take care of it mhm you guide me i've noticed it works <laughs> what you have to what you have to be prepared for is that there's that interim which people are uncomfortable with mm-hmm. you know you the gap or the, the gap right after you've off, after you've offered it you know it's like you're used to hanging on and feeling like you're in control all of which that sense of feeling like you're in control belongs to the ego mechanism. Mhm. Mm-hmm. And then you feel something often that becomes the point of crisis for a person is that suddenly they realize they're not as in control as they had perhaps thought they were. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that doesn't feel very good, right? Right. So now it begs the question okay what do i do with this sense of extreme discomfort about the fact that i don't feel like i'm in control mhm there you can bring in your technique of surrender so you're you're you look like you're developing a relationship with your higher self but that would be incorrect because it's not a relationship it's what you are mhm you're including it mhm in your consciousness which otherwise unless you intentionally include it offer and surrender which means you you offer your sense of small self to your own higher self 
And that relationship probably is, or that way of thinking about it is useful until the small self is completely that's right gone and there's only that's right anything else but that's right that's exactly right and and to me that is the supreme um, technique the supreme event the supreme goal of, of all sadhana all spiritual practice is this ultimate surrender of the individual I or the ahankar um, into its own source and the recognition thereby that I was never separate, I was never alone, you know, <laughs> I was never any of those, and, and all of my emotions and feelings and all of my situations and happenings and all of my sense of birth and death and all of my fear of change and trying to cope with the challenging situations in my life, it's all not separate from that self. Mm-hmm. So let's now try to think about for people who live in in this area or live in a modern city Mm -hmm. and you know at the beginning of the interview you mentioned it's such a relevant text so this metaphor that Arjun is in what is the metaphor that we're in today Mm. Um, and how does this duality and separation play out in today's in the 21st century yeah um so the metaphor that Arjun represents um, is he, as you, I liked your word crisis, so he's, he's at a turning point in his life. He's facing a very, very challenging situation. And, you know, I look around and especially um, it's been three years since I've been in Canada and there have been big changes in three years and I notice um, a much more pervasive sense of uncertainty mm-hmm. um, bordering on even a bit of fear mm-hmm. and maybe even a lot of fear mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uncertainty is a good word uncertainty and unsettledness mm-hmm. people don't know what's coming next mm-hmm. and um, are struggling often not always but they're, they're are often struggling just to keep up with the pace or rate of change that seems to be happening in their daily lives. Mm -hmm. Now, Arjun is dealing with the same predicament, Mm -hmm. right? He's suddenly faced with a situation that has seriously changed for him, and he doesn't know what to do. And I think that's what happens. You know, you're given a certain training in your life, and that training is supposed to prepare you to be a grown-up and deal with your challenges Mm -hmm. and then you hit some of those challenges and your training isn't kicking in to help you Mm -hmm. even the training of of having a physical yoga practice that's right Mm -hmm. and and this is exactly Arjun's predicament as I said he's he's not just any human being he's a very very exemplary human being Mm -hmm. and if even he (laughs) right is finding it challenging to deal with his situation then it makes the reader sort of sit up and take notice that wow like this guy who's Arjun right mm-hmm. is isn't isn't knowing what to do and and Vyas who's the writer of the Gita clearly tuned into some cosmic sort of um, archetypal situation <laughs> for human beings because because Arjun's situation though cloaked in the cultural 
um, happening of that time. So he's on a battlefield having to fight a, a battle of virtue for his family. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the cultural aspect. But the metaphorical aspect is that he's on a battlefield. Mm -hmm. And the battlefield, the Kurukshetra, which is the, the name of the battlefield where the battle was fought, um, the battlefield is his own mind. Mm -hmm. And he is incapable of dealing with the challenge that is being presented to him by his dualistic waking state mind, even though he has been trained from birth to be the most excellent warrior. He's from the Kshatriya class, which is the warrior class, mm -hmm. right? So again, he's, he's born into it, he's been trained into it, and he's been prepared for this. Mm-hmm. So it's not a small thing that he just sort of wimps out and drops his bow and arrow and says, I won't fight. Mm -hmm. And and Vyas, the writer of, of the Gita, understood that this, this scenario that he's painting represents the eternal human predicament. Therefore, it's as relevant in the 21st century as it was in whatever century this uh, Bhagavad Gita was written, which is before Christ. Mm -hmm. So... Now what we're dealing with is human consciousness, mm -hmm. which throughout the ages, though apparently changing with culture and time and the progression of history and all of that sort of thing, the actual functioning of human consciousness and its potential for realization of my own self as pure and free and eternal has always been. Mm -hmm. So it's like the canvas you know, the backdrop on which all the different scenarios of that consciousness play out. And I believe and feel that the Gita represents that, that there's always, always a higher consciousness that is available to us. And the dialogue between Krishna and Arjun is the dialogue that is taking place in our own heads. You've got Arjun, who doesn't know what to do, who represents ignorance. And you've got Krishna, the voice that that says, no, I can do this. No, you aren't actually limited, right? Mm -hmm. You can act, and, and you can break through the limitation of your waking state. Mm -hmm. So that Krishna consciousness is less accessible and even inaccessible to most people. Now, that's, I'm sure, a topic for a whole other interview. <laughs> but um, one question I want to come back to in terms of surrender is I myself have a, a teacher or guru as it's known and um, I, I find it really useful to have a physical person who I can think of when I have problems yeah. or when I have um, when I'm in a state of crisis or in a state of duality so do you, how important is it to have some at least image of something higher or to have a concept or to actually have a person and what is the function of that in helping mm -hmm. um, in the sense of surrender yeah it's a beautiful question um, it's extremely important um, it's important because again going back to our Gita the way this whole unfoldment of Arjun's realization of the self takes place is through his dialogue with his teacher. Mm -hmm. And and Krishna, it's like in physics, 
um, you've got those subatomic particles that sometimes behave like a particle and sometimes behave like a wave. <laughs> you can't pin them down. Mm-hmm. But Krishna's like that, mm-hmm. right? He is the absolute, like in chapter 11 when he reveals his divine form to Arjuna, it becomes obvious that he's not just the chum that Arjuna <laughs> thought he was, which is like the particle, right? He's the wave. He's the whole consciousness. He's mm-hmm. vaster than vast. Mm-hmm. And the miracle is that that vaster than vast can also manifest itself through its own form as a human being. Mm-hmm. And it's not separate. Mm-hmm. So in whatever way that vaster than vast or subtler than subtlest manifests itself in your life, it is to be surrendered to because it's your own vaster than vast. Mm-hmm. And that could be, I, I suppose, through... A person or even through an experience in nature or or that's right that's right and and anyone who's had an experience of something bigger has what accompanies that experience is always a sense of doubtlessness mm-hmm. you know you you just know mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. just know that this is something you know this is just so true mm-hmm. and that this is what is real mm-hmm until the mind kicks in again and starts doubting because that's its job, right? <laughs> so, which Arjun represents that. So, something needs to be there as an ideal. That's what I think you're referring to. Mm-hmm. So that the mind, and even if you're just making a concept of it, mm-hmm. right? You just keep following, the, it's like Hansel and Gretel, right? You just keep following the breadcrumbs. <laughs> right. <laughs> the next thing, because if you, because I'm aware that not everyone has a physical teacher Mm -hmm. and so if you speak about the necessity for a physical teacher then anyone who doesn't have a physical teacher is going to feel bad Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. i don't want them to feel bad Mm -hmm. so um so i i will say that um it is fortunate if you have a physical teacher and yet the ways of that infinite vast being are so creative that that teacher can come to you when you are open, it will show up in your life, mm-hmm. and your whole life becomes your teacher. Mm-hmm. So the spirit with which you approach your life, which then goes back to our theme of surrender, because if you can recognize with whatever concept you make that there is a higher being than you as an ahankar or an ego consciousness, if you can recognize that and accept that, then a lot of the job is done. Mm-hmm. And if you can practice that in every moment, then you're not doing. Mm-hmm. Then that, because you, because here's what happens, here's the magic of what happens through surrender. Through surrender, the, the false barrier between yourself and that higher being gets dissolved. So what you're effectively doing is you're taking down your umbrella so that the grace can shower on you. It's not like grace is only going to shower, you know, <laughs> when those particular experiences happen. Grace is always showering, mm-hmm. but we fail to recognize it because of the ahankar. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, I, 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 that's such a beautiful metaphor, and I think that'll be a, a perfect way for us to to draw this this particular interview in our series to an end, is to uh, think of the umbrella as the ahankar. And when you remove it, that grace can then shower you. So, yeah.
Thank you. Thank you so much for your time, and I look forward to our continued dialogues about the Bhagavad Gita. So do I. Thanks so much. Thank you.